0: can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Jared Goldman.
1: And Jared, can you tell us a little bit about how you started your career and kind of, you know, uh, how you got to where you're at now?
0: Uh, Sure. So, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the entertainment industry is there's no independent size. There's no ladder to climb, right? I guess if you go work at a company, you can work up a a ladder. Um, So, you know, my trajectory Has been sort of unusual but i think it's as unusual as anybody else's trajectory because everybody just has to forge their own path so um i really wanted to go into the music industry but when i was in college napster was happening and i felt like well if i am downloading music from napster i am essentially just stealing from my future self um so that means this is going to get way worse before it gets any better um, and then, um, boy, I hope there's there's some type of statute that I just didn't incriminate myself. That now, the, like the the music industry is going to. I think we got seven years, so I think you're good on
1: <laughs> it. Napster hasn't been around for seven. <laughs>
0: um, so I was fortunate enough. I was able to get an internship at Miramax Films in its heyday in New York. I was in publicity and then in the acquisitions department. The acquisitions department is the is the department that goes both looking at films that are in film festivals that are looking for distribution and need a home, as well as looking at material that is unproduced that that Miramax would then make in-house. And that opportunity, when I graduated, turned into a job. And then that job then got downsized, like, I don't know, three or four months after I was there, Disney downsized. And I was able to very fortunately pivot and get a job at a robust production and financing entity called Green Street Films, where they made films like the Todd Field movie In the Bedroom, which was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and the Brittany Murphy film, Uptown Girls, and the Robert Altman movie, A Prairie Home Companion. So it was a, a really fertile and creative and just like exciting place to be. And what was really formative for me was that while I was there, the company was run by two people. One is a guy named John Panati who came up as an assistant director working for Sydney Lumet. And for... Fisher Stevens, who's now on succession, and he's got a big documentary company, and he's a very successful actor, um, producer, director. But John and the head of production there having come up working for Sydney Lumet were doing all of the breakdowns of the projects, which means that they are, you know, you take a script and then you're looking at scene by scene, like how do we how would we film this? Where would we film this? How would we couple all of these different locations together? And then from there you budget the film to figure out how much would it actually then cost to do this. So we were doing all of that work in-house, and I recognized like, oh, this is in a pretty critical part of the process to understand, like, okay, you you do a breakdown of, of a script and you learn to make this as scripted costs, I don't know, pick a number, 15 million dollars. However, the marketplace, you know, with this type of story, with this type these types of actors will only allow for probably $10 million worth of financing. So what do you do, right? So then it becomes the process of looking at the story and seeing, is there a way to do it for less without undermining the integrity of the thing? And that, learning how to do that became really like a beacon for me. I just, I love that part of the process because it is really where the creative and commerce sort of like marry into each other. So when I left Green Street, I had that skill set of understanding how to do that And I produced a documentary in 2007 called Mandovala Send a Bullet about the cyclical nature of corruption and kidnapping in Brazil. And it's about a a frog farm that's at the tip of a $2 billion corruption scandal. Um, That got into Sundance and won the Grand Jury Prize. Um, And that opened like a whole bunch of doors for me. Actually, anecdotally, when that movie won, um, David Lee Roth of Van Halen had reached out because he is a a huge fan of like all things Brazil and Brazilian culture and Brazilian music and and cinema and he asked to see the film and then he invited the director and me to go see Van Halen as his guest at Madison Square Garden and uh, and then I have a Google alert for Bala. and then two weeks ago or so I got a like the first Google alert on the movie in years and it's because David Lee Roth <laughs> released a song. Called Mondavala, which I'm just going to, for my own merriment, assume uh, is his tribute to the documentary I made. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but it feels good to think that, like, maybe, maybe I somehow influenced David Lee Roth. Um, but anyway, so, but, but you know, then that opened, you know, a, a bunch of doors, and and it allowed me to sort of nimbly over the last, you know, 15 years or so, just navigate being. Um, hired both as like a creative producer where I'm developing projects and and helping get them set up. What that means is, you know, whether it's my finding a story and then finding a writer and then finding a director and actors and then setting it up with financing or writers and directors coming to me with a script or their ideas and then doing the same thing. Um, Or what often also happens is I will get called from friends and colleagues who will say, all right, Jared, we've got this project. You know, here's all the people involved. We've got a budget of, you know, X and the financing of, you know, X minus insert percentage amount. Can we pay you to consult to work with us to figure out how to get this thing into, into production? I'm I'm very fortunate that I can sort of think with both, you know, in the sort of practical production sense as well as think, you know, creative, you know, story problem solving sense.
1: No, that makes sense. And how, uh, let's go back a little bit. How did you get into Merrimax? I I feel like, uh, just getting your foot into the doorstep of, you know, a big studio is a very hard process. How do you get there and then move up from that to, you know, starting to, uh, you said you started in PR, then moved up to like acquisitions. How do you, how does that come together?
0: Yeah. So, so the internship came about, through a, a filmmaker named Brian Koppelman. Brian subsequently has created the TV show billions it's a you know, huge show um, which I'm sure given where this this airs or'll we'll have you know many followers but so I um, through like family connections had met Brian and uh, and he saw my interest in in storytelling and filmmaking and we're both just big music geeks so we we really uh, connected on that and then he was making Rounders at Miramax, which is the poker movie with Ed Norton and Matt Damon. And I was looking for something to do for the summer. And so I asked him, is there anybody you can put me in touch with at Miramax who like you think might need an intern? And so like he connected me with, with someone there and that led to that you know initial internship. Uh, and then I just worked my ass off. Uh, it's, so much of the industry is also very apprentice based. So like who you end up working for can really end up opening lots of opportunities if that person themselves is you know, very well respected or a hard worker or, or so the publicity thing when I was an intern right I was interning in publicity that was for two months then the following summer I came back interning in acquisitions I was just able to move over and then when I graduated and got a job that was in also sort of in the acquisitions business affairs area but all of that what's so interesting is like It's not the glamorous side of the industry, um, but it is like, it is like the, the anchor of the industry of, of the filmmaking process. Like you have to understand the, the arc of, of you make a project, what do you do with it? Right. Like I've seen projects come to a halt because people weren't thorough in the acquisitions process where like, you got to make sure your contracts are signed. Right. It's like all of that sort of stuff. That's, you know, it's not fun, but it is so critical uh, and that, that sort of, well, as someone who was starting my career, you know the, all of that stuff got dumped on me, right? Make sure this person signed, it. Call them. Make sure like we can't release the movie until they sign their thing. Um, photocopies. I got very, very good at making photocopies and FedExing things to to Los Angeles. But um, but it it makes you really like it really conditions you to be incredibly detail oriented.
1: So Disney comes in, kind of wipes a lot of people out of there, and uh, you move over. To a new production company is there any point of that time that you kind of felt like giving up or any time like you're just like this is not going to work out for me
0: you know what's funny is uh no i mean i what's funny is like i just had this sort of blissful naivete where i was just like i believe maybe you know i was i was very fortunate to have good parents who told me i can do anything but i was like i believe i can do this other people have done this i can do this and um so i never felt like it wasn't gonna work i just didn't know how it was gonna work right like the the challenge again with the industry is because there's no ladder right it's hard to see it's hard to look at somebody who's 30 years older than you and be like i want to do what they're doing it's like sure but like how you know how they got there is not how you will get there and especially because the industry is has changed so much right like just think about, you know, I, I wasn't around, but you know, but like when VHS came in, right? It probably caused everyone to go, ah, the industry's falling apart, right? And then and then, you know, cable had the same thing, and then DVDs had the same thing, and now streaming's had the same thing, right? It's like so you have to be so someone who's 30 years older than you came up in an industry that's really very different than what you would experience. So what I have found to be meaningful for me in trying to understand okay well within where do i go right at least early on what i would try to do is like i got really good advice from a guy named carrie granite carrie was was the head of dimension which was miramax's genre label like they did the scream movies
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and and he had said to me you know try to just look three years ahead don't look like that's great you want to be you know, you want to run a company or you want to do whatever. whatever. He said, there's no ladder. So if you just look three years ahead, who's someone who's two or three years older than you, who is doing something that seems like you'd want to be doing that in two or three years. And that at least is a trajectory that you can clearly see because they're only two or three years older than you. And uh, and so I was like trying to look at that a little bit, but like, I don't know, I just had this, this, belief. I was like, I really love the storytelling process and I love, I'm an extrovert. So I love talking to people. And I was like, and that's so much, that's what the industry is, right? So I was like, okay, I'll just figure it out, right? And like when I got laid off from Miramax, I was just like, I don't know, I'll just find a a job. It was really hard to find that first job because I graduated in 2001. And then when September 11th happened, there was just no, there were no jobs. So it took me Nine months, I think, to get my first job out of college. And then I was like, all right, well, I got that one. I guess I'll just, I'll just get another one. And if I have to sleep on couches of friends in the city or I have to go stay with family, um, as long as they welcome me to do that, then I'll just do that. So.
1: And that's so once you go into like, uh, you said you had the documentary. I think that was a little bit earlier in your career, right?
0: Yeah, that was in 2007, so
1: that goes to Sundance wins. Does that help your career or you were already kind of on that level? Does it really, because we did talk to a, a producer that, you know, he went to Sundance with a movie called Believe with uh, Ryan Goslin and it kind of just really shot his career up. It was like, that was the one stepping stone that really brought him to the
0: next level. Did you feel that in I, that aspect? Or? I, I did just because it, it gave me a little bit of credibility. And I think, you know, it helped me, distinguish myself that much more from other people my age or other first-time filmmakers, right? There's plenty of people who who make movies, but then those movies never do anything. So to have the first movie I made to win the festival, I like to think that it maybe distinguished me for some people. I mean, again, it's a documentary about corruption and kidnapping in Brazil. So that's a third world country, right? So it's not like, you know, a an English language Fiction feature with like an actor who then broke out. It's still a documentary. Um, but it was, uh, it's something I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. It was incredibly dangerous to make it um, and, um, and a lot of fun. I made it with uh, my closest friend and it's become something now that has attained a little bit of cult status. Like the Museum of the Moving Image listed it as one of the top 20 documentaries of the century so far. So I mean, we're we're a quarter, almost a quarter into the century. So, you know, that's, I'll take that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it just, it helped in just shifting perspective or helping create perspective of like who I am as a person in the industry.
1: And as a producer that kind of uses both, you know, the business side and the creative side on set, was there anything that kind of just, on set, you're always kind of problem solving. So is there anything that really happened that was on any movie that was like really bad that you were like, I don't know how to get out of the situation, kind of an ocean oh moment?
0: No, I mean, because everything, there's always problems, right? So it's just about approaching them with a clear head and trying to understand how you can help solve the problem, right? You can pick, you can analyze how the problem happened afterwards, but so much of it's just about creating a, a safe environment, safe working environment. You know, Mandevala was unique because it was in Brazil and I was a first time producer. It was a first time director, right? Where we like I was still while we it took five or six years to maybe seven years to make that documentary. So over the course, six years. maybe. So over the course of making that, I was working at Miramax and working at Green Street and Fortunately, just had very, very supportive bosses who believed in me, Um, but it was the director who, Jason Cohn, who was down in Brazil, and so he was calling me. I was trying to, and updating me on how the filming was going. I was trying to gather resources to continue the shoot while I was working my day job, you know, at Miramax and Green Street. And, you know, when you're in a third world country and you're trying to find kidnappers, let's say, right, you end up encountering a lot of unsavory people and you end up in in challenging situations so do we go to very very
1: for kidnappers like how how do we find kidnappers just out of curiosity so
0: so again so the movie is about the the cyclical nature of corruption and kidnapping in brazil and and about this frog farm in the northernmost part of brazil it's so fun to talk about i haven't talked about this movie in such a long time um about a frog farm that's in the northernmost part of brazil in an area called Sudan and we interview a frog farmer. The movie opens with this big crane shot on a frog farm, which I don't know if you've ever seen what a frog farm looks like, but it is tens of thousands of frogs on like acres and acres of frog farm. And uh, what we get into with that first interview is that there is a politician in in Sudan who had allocated money, government funds to his wife to start another frog farm. And we start to ask, our frog farmer, has he worked with that frog farm, the politician's frog farm? And he's, you know, and he, what we get into is like that frog farm, the politician's frog farm doesn't really exist, right? It exists on paper. It's just a way for the politician to have sort of given his wife millions of dollars. Um, It's just corruption, right? It's just classic sort of corruption. Um, But what happens in a third world country like that is like, when you are, stealing money on that level and that instead of going to create jobs and create industry and help warm up account really rural economies you know when you're stealing that money and then denying people the opportunity to work you're just flat out sort of murdering them right because then they can't eat and and so then we get into another storyline with a, a kidnapper who had left northern Brazil, because it was impoverished and he couldn't make a living. He moved to Sao Paulo, where he um, is living in a favela, and he becomes this sort of Robin Hood character, where he is you know, kidnapping people and then taking the ransom to help feed people in the community. Finding him was very challenging. So after Jason had come back with a bunch of footage, we, had, we did not have the kidnapper, but we realized to make the story complete, We would have to, Jason would have to go back to Brazil and we'd have to find someone to fill in this aspect of the story. So it was one of the most challenging and singular moments of my career to turn to my best friend and say, the movie looks great. I, the stories are coming together, but you really have to go back to Brazil, and you, it'd be great if you could find someone who was, you know, kidnapped or murdered someone for money, right? And it's like you can't just go stand on a street corner and try to find these people. So the investigation into figuring out how that, how to find that person, was its own adventure. Um, and what ended up happening is we had tried to go through the Brazilian prison system, but then the prison system became suspicious that we were trying to do some type of expose on you know, on the underbelly of the Brazilian prison system. And by serendipity, Jason got a toothache and had been using this one taxi service for all the many months he had been in Brazil. He gets into this taxi and the driver says, Jason, how, how's the movie going? And Jason says... You know, I'm I'm really stuck. I'm I'm trying to I need to find someone who has come to the city to try to make ends meet Um, and someone who has, you know, is like works illicitly. And the taxi driver said, look, there's a guy who to make a little money on the side. I he will give me packages. I don't ask what's in the packages. I deliver the packages where he wants me to and he gives me some money. So that guy might be a way in and so then jason was introduced to that guy who then connected him to this other world and then jason gets a phone call from the person we ended up interviewing who said i hear you're you're looking for someone who makes a living kidnapping and and so we interviewed this this guy who's this robin hood character it was a pretty wild experience
1: no absolutely and uh, from there you know is there anything new you're working on now that uh you have coming out
0: yeah, um, so well, I, I had a movie come out Memorial Day Weekend, very different than Mondo a, a movie come out Memorial Day Weekend called About My Father with a comedian named Sebastian Maniscalco uh, and an a up-and-coming actor named Robert De Niro. Yeah, yes, um, brand new. Uh, um, uh, and uh, then I've got a movie that will likely come out in 2024 called The Parenting, which is about which was made for New Line Cinema. It's about a, a gay couple that, in looking to get engaged, rent a weekend house um, to invite their parents to come and meet and celebrate. But little does anyone know that uh, not only is the house possessed by a demon, but it's possessed by a homophobic demon. So um, so one set of parents is played by Brian Cox from Succession and Edie Falco from you know, Nurse Jackie and the Sopranos. The other set of parents is played by Lisa Kudrow and it's, uh, and Parker Posey is the, and Dean Norris plays her husband, Dean Norris from Breaking Bad. Parker Posey is the woman who summons the demon, the gay couple uh, are, is a guy named Brandon Flynn from 13 Reasons Why and a, a stand-up from LA named Nick Dodani. So that'll come out. Uh, it's written by a guy named Ken Sablet, who's the head writer of SNL and directed by Craig Johnson. Craig and I, this is a Fourth or fifth movie I've made with Craig. The first movie we made together was a movie that came out ten years ago called *The Skeleton Twins* with Kristen Wiig and and Bill Hader, It's just like the the little indie movie that could. Um, and uh, so I'm always working. What's been fun is what streaming has been really has really accelerated over the last couple of years. Is that you know as a producer coming up, it was you know if you're in New York, you're sort of like a New York movie producer. Um, TV was a separate industry, and now You know what's happened is over the last couple of years there's this fluidity in just the sort of storytelling process where I can now go pitch something as a movie as a TV show. I produced the the second season of the Netflix show Russian Doll, um, and I produced the second season of the Netflix Marvel series of The Punisher. So now I've been doing more TV. And, there's, and now I want to get into animation. I think there's a huge storytelling opportunity in animation. Obviously, I've been doing documentaries. That that, that director who I made, Bondavala with Jason Cohn, and I had a, a documentary come out uh, a year ago on Showtime, which is now Paramount Plus, called Nothing Lasts Forever, which is about the diamond industry and the mixing of, of synthetic diamonds with... Uh, with natural diamonds, which is causing a little bit of chaos in the diamond industry. Um, and the movie feels like we've filmed it to feel like a, almost like an Indiana Jones thriller. So for any Showtime or Paramount plus subscribers out there, um, go see nothing lasts forever, but it's been, um, it's been great. It's just so busy. It's really busy.
1: Okay. And, um, my last question was kind of, do you have any advice for like new filmmakers coming up and starting out?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, the industry, again, like there's no ladder. So the industry is really about networking and about, you know, what I'm looking for with people who I'm meeting. If it's on the, if it's people who are looking to be on the, you know, production side and the producing side or, you know, work for a company, it's really about like listening. I find that so many people are so, get distracted so easily by, you know, their phone buzzing or, or whatnot, um, you know, listen to like what you are being asked for. And then the big thing is anticipation, right? It's, you know, if you can see what the people around you need and you can anticipate that, that will help get you very far, very quickly, as well as just being a very clear communicator. I think being a clear communicator is, is paramount to, to anything. As far as on the, the filmmaking side, just just do it, right? I think like go make a good short, Um, but just, you know, the story is what's the most important thing, right? If Think about, like, who is the audience for your story? How would you want to get it to them? Why does the world want to see this story? Like, I, at the moment, have sort of shifted away from more bleak stories and find, like, I'm all for things that are melancholy and dark, but there has to be aspects that are both playful and hopeful, and I've always loved that balance of, I don't know, playfulness and poignancy. I was very fortunate early in my career to make two movies with Rob Reiner. One was called The Magic of Belle Isle with Morgan Freeman and the other one was called And So It Goes with Michael Douglas and Diane Keaton. And that initial run of Rob's I came to realize was, was so inspirational to me. It's, he directed This Is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, the american president i mean that's sort of a wild wildly successful run of stories um in sort of like a billy wilder kind of way and those two movies i made with was like the greatest film school one could ever ever ask to attend but um you know what i learned is like a lot of those movies if you look at them even though they they hop genres they always have this ratio of of humor to heart i mean it's essentially just make them laugh make them cry right um if you can make your audience laugh and make them cry i mean that's the that's the old adage it's like then then you have them really immersed um but rob's movies also always had this sort of underlying current of yearning and melancholy that i just i love and uh and they're just you know funny and and heartfelt you know so you know he was very clear of like these are the stories I want to tell. He was underst- and he understood that you can make things that are commercial and artful. Um, that don't have to be based on some pre-existing IP and the number of conversations I have where I'm told, oh, what's the pre-existing IP? It's like, well, everything was an original story at one point, right? Star Wars was an original idea. So if you just, for filmmakers, it's like, find a story that is good. You will know it's good because it's the same way when you tell your friends a story at a restaurant and they lean in, you know, you've got their attention. Your story that you want to film should be the same sort of same sort of you know ideology so make sure you find a story that you're certain is is compelling um, and that you understand who the audience for this can be and just follow that you know follow that it'll good things find you know, find their audience I, I like to believe anyway